Now, Seb, do you like donuts? I absolutely love donuts, and actually, um, I have family in the United States, and one of the highlights of visiting them is getting a dozen donuts from one of their really dirty donut shops, like gourmet donuts, Dunkin' Donuts. What sort of toppings? Well, are you... I mean, the the I mean, if anyone hasn't, if there are U.S. listeners, I know what I'm talking about. If you haven't been to the U.S., you may not really be familiar with this because of the limited scope of donuts you get in other countries, at least that's my personal opinion, but you can get uh, ones with cream inside them, custard inside Ooh. them, you get the toppings like the sprinkles and different combinations of flavour, you get apple, you get, um, gosh, I mean, it's like a, it's, it's, it's a whole new the... experience, and I love, and I, I love the experience, I have at least three, if I'm there for two weeks, I'll have at least three separate donut experiences. <laughs> so, you're quite the donut fan, I'm which is fortunate. Donut. Because we are going to be talking about donuts today. This is the Circulate Podcast, broadcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Uh, my name's Joe. And welcome back to the Circulate podcast. I'm the editor-in-chief of Circulate, and the donut aficionado next to me is Seb. Seb, thank you for coming back to the Circulate podcast. Thank you for having me, Joe. And the reason we're talking about donuts is that today uh, we've got coming up a conversation with Kate Rayworth, the author of Donut Economics. Uh, Kate's a renegade economist, a lecturer at Oxford University, and late last year spoke with Joss Blerio, our colleague, um, about this, this donut economics concept and a type of uh, uh, economics that she sees is more suitable for the 21st century. Seb, you have seen this, uh, you've heard this conversation before, um, you've had a sneak peek. What did you make of the chat with Kate? Yeah, I mean, Kate is uh, a great storyteller, I think, and... Um, I mean, what's striking about her background of this is that she's um, a lecturer um, and she's looking for a more inspiring version of economics, so from, from a teaching and learning about economics perspective. And the premise of what she's talking about is that um, the economics that are taught in universities now are uh, based on textbooks that were written in the 1950s and ideas that were conceived in the 1840s. They're outdated, disconnected from people's real experiences. Um, and I guess her idea has gained a lot of traction since 2008 and the financial crisis. Um, and so she's uh, released her latest book, which is How to Think Like a 21st Century Econom Economist and, how, and, and um, is inspired by um, various other thinkers as well. Um, so she's got a great story. And I, one thing I liked from the conversation was how she is, perhaps is mainly a UK thing, but she's quite frequently faces the question um, around her political leanings and whether this is kind of this uh, idealistic, left-leaning view of the world. And actually, I always find her response is, is just grounded kind of in the common sense, that the, the, the way, um, the type of economics that you just described that's a few hundred years old really isn't suitable for the world that we live in today. Um, so this kind of common sense update to the way that we view uh, the economy is something that I think, I hope that a lot of people 
um, enjoy from the chat with Kate. Yeah, and she's talking about, um, effectively, for people who aren't familiar with it, she's talking about having an economics that works for people so that people have a basic standard of living, but also within, um, you know, within the boundaries of uh, the environment, I guess. We should be clear that the donut, the donut at the centre <laughs> of this is a diagram. <laughs> there were actually not many donuts eaten during this conversation, I think. The conversation took place in the UK, so it wouldn't have been... <laughs> Satisfying donut, a donut free zone. <laughs> um, okay, so this is the first uh, episode of the podcast for a while, and we hope you enjoy it. We've got a great series of shows lined up for you. Um, a lot of them recorded at the Disruptive Innovation Festival. Seb, what is the diff? The diff is a three week online festival ideas that takes place in November, it explores the future of the economy through the lenses of business design and technology. Um, and it asks this question, what if we could redesign everything? And uh, through the many um, discussions that took place at last year's uh, Disruptive Innovation Festival, we'll be sharing those as podcast episodes in the coming weeks. So make sure to subscribe to the Circulate podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you do enjoy the show, then please rate it and share or let us know what you think on Twitter at Circulate News. And with that, let's get on with today's show. Enjoy this conversation with Kate Rayworth. This interview was originally recorded as part of the Disruptive Innovation Festival. You can find out more at thinkdiff.co. So to start us off, Kate, yeah. I'd like to quote Thomas Sedlasek, who's a Czech economist who used to be the advisor for uh, President Vaclav Havel. And he said, the first rule about Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Mm -hmm. The first rule of economics is you do not talk about ethics. What does that bring to mind? Oh, so I would add a little bit to that. The first rule of 20th century economics is you don't talk about ethics. Because last century's economists wanted to prove that economics was a science. So you take away the appearance of values. The first rule of 21st century economics is we start with ethics. Because we have to start with what is the economy for? I was never even invited to ask that question in the four years that I studied economics, but I think it should be the first question on every syllabus today. If we don't know what the economy is for, we don't know what kind of economy to construct. So your whole idea of the donut economics, which is really looking at all the parameters and what the economy is actually embedded in, is really saying we're going to look at economics as if there was a world around it, right? Exactly. Exactly. And how have we come to that notion that actually it's completely removed and it's scientific and neutral and very clinical and happens almost in a test lab kind of environment? What created that and how could that narrative become so pervasive? Really key question, actually. Um, I would say it began back in the 1870s when a few highly influential economists like William Stanley Jevons and Leon Valras in Switzerland, they wanted to make economics a science as reputable as physics. And they looked to the great physics master of the day, which was Isaac Newton. And they actually literally created analogies between physics and economics. So they said, just as gravity pulls a moving object to rest, so prices pull markets into equilibrium. And they, the language, it was about market forces, market mechanism, right? You can hear the physics of the day embedded in that language. And it's still there today. So. The very first diagram that any economic student learns worldwide, if you ask them, it's always the same, supply and demand. That actually was derived from Jevons attempting to show an economic law of demand, right? We hear people talking about the law of diminishing returns, the laws of supply and demand. There are no laws. 
This was a based on fake physics. And I always say, you know, if, if you're going to tell students, start with supply and demand. That's like saying the economy is the market and the market's in equilibrium. Well, that's two untruths on day one. It's not a very good place to start your mm. degree. I think today's students deserve something better. How would, you, how would you look at it now? Is it because there was no connectivity as we know it, no internet? What was the, what was the reason for that strategic take on things? So it was in the 1940s. It was actually 70 years ago this year, April 1947. A small group of economists met in Mont Pelerin, this little Swiss village, Friedrich uh, Hayek, Milton Friedman, and they said, we're going to create this neoliberal story. They knew that they would have to seed this story for decades, and they did. They, it, it didn't hit the international stage until Reagan and Thatcher in the 80s, but they seeded it in chambers of commerce, in creating posts for professors in university, in setting up think tanks. And so they spread the story. So when Reagan and Thatcher came to power, Reagan was surrounded by Mont Pelerin Society insiders, Margaret Thatcher's first Chancellor of the Exchequer, Geoffrey Howe was a member of the society. Suddenly the moment came, but it took a long time. We don't have decades to create a new story to replace this broken neoliberal one. But what we do have, I think, is a worldwide web of rethinkers and doers of economics who are already showing how we can put this new story together, exemplifying it in circular economy practices, in distributive design, in new thinking and theory. It's a very exciting task, actually, the 21st century economic movement, to bring together the work of so many people to show that we have this new story. If we can put it together as a synergy and create one new narrative, rather than always leaving it as a critique against the old. One thing that you say in your book is that economics is the mother tongue of public policy, which effectively says that politics today are the hostage of that old school narrative. So how do we break that cycle? Apart from simply revealing it, mm. I know you're a big fan of Buckminster Fuller and mm. so are we, so you, mm. you create a model that renders the other one obsolete. Which is that model and how do we create it? What tools do we use? Mm. So first, when we listen to today's politicians, they are stuck in this old narrative. And it's almost hardest for politicians to change because they're under this very aggressive media attack that if they say anything that slightly steps away from the accepted paradigm, they can be parodied. They can be made to look ridiculous. So you can tell that politicians know that the old story of unending growth doesn't work. We hear them attempting to reframe what the economy's for. I, I call it growth bingo. I listen for the words they add. So they'll talk about sustainable growth or inclusive growth, equitable growth smart growth, balanced growth, good growth, efficient growth. You can have any future you want as long as it's growth. We're stuck. And yet when people have to add so many adjectives in front of this vision, it's clear that it's ripe for falling. So we need to move away from the growth as a given paradigm and create a new center. And I think we need to come to an era of balance, fundamentally replacing that idea of endless growth, addicted to growth, to an economy that's based on balance. Um, I can express it in very simple terms because we've just only just come to understand our deep understand our deep interdependence with the living world. So I can express what um, is essential to human well-being in two tiny objects that I happen to have here. One of them is a little bean, right? Every person needs food, water, shelter, healthcare, education, meet your basic human rights to survive day to day. And I would say 20th century economics focused on this so that everybody had the income that they could buy their needs. 
But that's only half of the story. The other half of the story of human well-being is this little blue marble, planet Earth, which must have a stable climate and fertile soils and a protective ozone layer and abundant biodiversity and thriving ecosystems. It's only 21st century economic thinking that's beginning to put these two together and realize that human well-being lies in a balance between meeting the needs of all but doing so within the means of the planet. So we need to get everybody out of this shortfall so that no one is falling short on life's essentials, but each person can meet their needs to water, food, healthcare, income, housing, energy. Everybody gets out of that hole in the middle into the donut itself, but that we don't overshoot our pressure on this extraordinary planet. So it's about a space of balance. Now, where are we today? Well, we are falling short for millions of people worldwide who can't meet their most basic needs, and yet we've already overshot our planet on our pressure on the planet's nine planetary boundaries. So I'd say this is the compass for the 21st century. Our generational challenge, whether as citizens, as politicians, as business leaders, as activists, is to eliminate all the red from that picture, to help ensure that every person can meet their needs, and we come back to do it within the means of the planet. And so what was once a circle turns into a donut. That's where the idea of donut economics comes from. This is the donut. And the 21st century compass is shaped like a donut. And our challenge is to get back into that. So we need to find balance. It's not about an ever rising line of growth. It's about creating balance between meeting human needs, but doing so within the earth system. It requires more brilliant innovation than we've ever seen before. And that's why it's actually an exciting time to be an economist, if you're part of this story. And, and I suppose when it comes to understanding some of these boundaries, the, the narrative around renewable energy and climate is fairly well established. But it seems that what's missing from the picture is the way we, the economy deals with materials, natural resources, finite resources. The International Resource Panel is trying to do that, but they still don't have that two-degree story. Is that something that you're keen to explore as well as part of that new narrative? Finding a way to more holistically look at the way we use, consume, produce all the resources and not only the energy and looking at the impacts and how do you tie that into uh, societal considerations because that, that's the big thing. I mean, the issue is so big that you need to find a, a clever entry point. Yeah. So. I drew this donut diagram in 2012 and it was published as a discussion paper for Oxfam. I was completely amazed by the international response to it. It just went a bit viral. And I realized the power of pictures, the power of images to shape the fundamental frames that we use in our thinking. You know, our, our visual intelligence is far greater than we give it credit for. Half the nerve fibers in our brain are linked to our sight. So we should pay real attention to the pictures that we draw and teach and use. So it drove me back to my economics textbooks. And again, the first diagram that every student knows, and probably the last one that they forget, is the crisscross of supply and demand. But if we start economics in a different place, we've got a far greater chance of taking on the questions that you're talking about. And what about the societal and society implications? Because society is right here between the earth and the economy. So how does that work out? What, what are the impacts of, if you accept that an economy shapes a society, what are we talking yes. about here? So it's, it, the economy depends upon society in many different ways and it reshapes society itself. It depends upon society because 
to have a market, you have to have all sorts of social institutions. You have to have trust, actually, between people that they will trade with each other. You have to have the legal framework that makes people believe that if I offer credit, I will get repaid. So there's a whole social construct of cooperation in order to allow the competitive nature of markets to exist in the first place. But also the kind of economy we have restructures social institutions. And as you can see in the middle there, I've, I've labeled the economy as having these four kinds of provisioning because in the 20th century, we got completely obsessed with the ideological boxing match between the market and the state, right? It came down to a question, are you a laissez-faire free market capitalist or are you a state-loving socialist? And in that binary boxing match, we lost sight of two other key provisioning sectors, the household, where we all begin every day, that unpaid caring work of cooking, washing, cleaning, sweeping, raising the children who become the labor for the economy, and also caring for our parents and our partners, totally outside the monetized economy, but an absolute subsidy to it, right? The, the monetary economy utterly depends upon that unpaid caring mm. work. But also the commons, which is a place where people get together, not through the market, not under the state, but as a community, self-organizing to create things that they collectively value, whether it's a, a neighborhood garden on the corner of your block or a Wikipedia on the World Wide Web. Now, mainstream economics ignores the living world here. It ignores the household, it ignores the commons. It's ignoring three of the most fundamental sources of our well-being. We have to start with these in the picture and realize that the wider vision of an economy, which is also the household and the commons, that reshapes our social behavior and reshapes our interactions. The society is the space in which the economy exists. It's not a separate thing. The economy is a, a, one form of our social relations. You talk about inequality, environmental destruction, human rights. I can imagine some people might write you off as a left-wing economist. How might you attract the interest of people across political divides? In other words, are you shooting yourself in the foot by revealing your values? Oh, I think, no, I've, I haven't at all felt like I've shot any bullets in my foot by revealing my values. Because if we don't start from values, then they are just deeply implicit within the system, right? They're, and, and they're always going to be hidden. I, I'm passionate to have conversations with people about their values. And if they don't share them, let's talk about it. But actually, as I often say when I show this diagram, we've got the market, the state, the household and the commons. I wouldn't want to live in an economy that lacked any one of those because the market is an incredible mechanism for allocating resources between millions, even billions of individual people who never need to talk or communicate. It's got the price mechanism, as Adam Smith said, is incredible. The trouble with the market is that it only values what's priced and it only pays attention to things you know, that, that, that have that value on. So it works within a limited sphere. We've got to put that together with recognition of the value of state-produced goods and the household and the commons. You know, the, the sort of left-wing or, oh, you haven't used the word capitalist or are you a socialist? I find these words so locked in the 20th century, I don't use them. Because if I say capitalism, somebody else will say socialism, somebody else will say communism. We're in an isms from the last century. I think we have a chance to wipe the slate of all those old words that carry such heavy baggage that doesn't help us. Left-wing, right-wing. So I would love somebody to say, I disagree with this diagram. Let's just take it on its terms, not with old labels, but what is it you don't agree with here? And then we can get beyond apparent political differences, which actually prevent us from having a more fundamental reframing of the kind of economy we want to create. Let, let's go back to students, because a couple of years ago, there was a big movement of 
economic students walking out of lectures mm. and saying, you know, you're not teaching us mm -hmm. about realities. It's a construct. We don't want to hear about this. Mm -hmm. We want proper economics that reflect the world that we're living in. Mm -hmm. Where is that movement? Has it achieved anything? Did it have an impact on the curriculum, on the way things were taught, on the content? That movement is bigger and better today than it was then. It may have been highly visible because the students were walking out of lectures and it hit the newspaper headlines. They've actually created an international movement. It's called Rethinking Economics. It's one, that's one of the leading groups. Internationally, students have realised that the danger for student movements is students turn over every three years, professors persist. So there's a real danger that the students just leave. They've now created their own institutions that they have fantastic website anybody can go and look at rethinking economics and see that they are they just held the first festival of new economic thinking in edinburgh just last month the students are actually at the forefront of new economic thinking they're demanding pluralism so they want to be taught all kinds of economic thinking and respected to draw upon their own judgment as to which kind of which school of economic thought to bring into their own decision making um, so I think actually it's a very, very powerful movement. I mean, the irony is, right, students go to university to get an education. Economic students worldwide have suddenly realised they've signed up for a degree, often paying huge fees and dedicating years of their life. And on day one, they realise that the syllabus they're being taught is stuck in the last century and it's not half fit to equip them for the challenges ahead. So the first job they have as students is to lobby their teachers to teach them something worth learning. It's an extraordinary moment. No other academic discipline has achieved this. So I think the economic students are a really important part of this change. And we need to work together as a movement, whether it's progressive professors who are working with them, the students, the businesses, the politicians, who all see we're desperate for a new economic narrative. Is there a way of referring to growth that you would be comfortable with? That's his question to you. Great question. Thank you for that question, Michael. Oh, yes, absolutely. Look at this. Beautiful. This plant is growing, right? Growth is a wonderful, natural, healthy phase. But the trouble with our economies is that the way growth has been imagined in economics is its shape is this ever-rising line, unending growth, 3% every year, thank you very much. Right? That just shoots through the ceiling. Look to nature, which has been thriving for nearly 4 billion years, for, and it's a pretty good example to learn from, biomimicry. How does nature grow? Right? In nature, nothing grows forever. From whether it's your children's feet or the Amazon forest, things grow, it's a wonderful, healthy phase, but then they grow up and they come to mature. And if they mature, they can thrive for a long, long, long time. I, in my economics degrees, and I know the students today, was never invited to ask that question. What would it look like to create an economy that grew until it had grown up, that meets the needs of all, and then could be an economy that didn't grow but thrived? Because things that try to grow forever, they destroy the host on which they depend. In our own body, we know it. We call it cancer. So why on earth would we expect that we could create economies that would be the one system that would buck that trend? What would it look like to create economies that grow until they thrive? And the way I say it simplest is we have economies that need to grow, whether or not they make us thrive. In fact, it's driving us to extreme inequality and running down the living world. What we need are economies that allow us to thrive, whether or not they grow. It's that goes back to Tim Jackson's point about prosperity without growth, yes. which actually was a report to the government. So one, uh, another question would be, 
has the government or any of the powers that be actually listened to that message? And if they did, what have they done to act upon that message? So first of all, I'd say, and I think Tim would agree with me, what we're actually looking for is prosperity with or without growth. Because I'm not against GDP growth. What I'm for is a regenerative and distributive economy. And sometimes things need to grow in order to take us there. Just one example would be the government of China has invested $360 billion in installing solar energy capacity by 2020. So that's a huge uptick for GDP growth in China. But once that capacity is in, it's near zero marginal cost of generating electricity, so it doesn't add. So I think GDP has to shift from being this target variable that must always be growing to becoming a response variable that moves up and down in response to the investments and the transformations that are required. So I wouldn't be surprised if GDP actually needs to go up at some point as we make this transformative investment in technologies and energy systems that actually enable us to thrive. So governments, the book I wrote, I wrote it with a long view for the whole 21st century of this, because it's a long transformation. I was appealing to the student's mind, to the next generation. What's really struck me is that since the book come out, came out, I have been approached by people who I would say are right at the front lines of today's economy. Political parties, individual politicians from actually across the spectrum, not just in the UK, but actually across the world, saying, I want to learn more about this, I want to understand this more. Uh, how could I talk about this kind of economy? A couple of politicians have begun to use the word thrive instead of grow because they see it's the beginning of a new paradigm that's still positive. Back to Buckminster Fuller, don't just negate growth oh, I'm not for a growth economy. What are you for? You've got to be for something. I'm for an economy that enables us to thrive. But also businesses. Some of the world's biggest household name businesses have approached me and said, what would it look like to transform ourselves so that we could actually be part of a thriving future? And asking pretty fundamental questions about how they're owned, how they're structured, how they're incentivized to become part of that future. So it just strikes me that so many people at the front line of today's economy are incredibly hungry for a new paradigm because they're, they're coming searching for how can we reimagine and recreate ourselves in a way that actually will be consistent with this, this new vision. But we don't account for that. We don't account for the benefits added. It's always if we mitigate, so that's a cost which is avoided, but how do we start accounting for the plus? All this stuff that is actually regenerative and say so I've contributed to that. And let's look, even life cycle analysis tools don't account for that. Yep. So there are two ways you can go. Um, we want to account for, account for it in the sense of we want to recognize it and understand it and see what we're contributing, the benefits we're generating. One way to go is to say, right, accounting, well, that's a monetary task, isn't it? Because it, we think of accounts being generated in dollar terms. So let's account for all these things in dollar terms and we'll put a price on ecosystem services and we'll value natural capital and we can add it into the balance sheet. I understand why people do that, and it, the particularly people who are doing that are at the front line of policy making today. They're trying to get um, insect killing pesticides banned. They're trying to protect a wood that's on the, on the edge of uh, being destroyed to build a, a service station, for example. The danger of that route is that we win the single battle, but we, we lose the war because in general what we're doing, the framing we're doing is saying, it's okay, economists. Economics and finance is still the mother tongue of public policy, so we're just going to express the natural world in a language that you know and love. We're going to hand over those numbers to you and you can do the calculations. There's a real danger there that we remove social protest, we remove moral argument, we remove passion, um, and we turn it into a financing 
job, which as anyone who does accounts knows, you can, you can write accounts for whatever result you want them to bring out. So the other route is to say, let's account for it, but let's account for it in its own terms. And that's why I love the planetary boundaries work. It tells us about our relationship and our pressure on the planet, but not in dollars. It's in parts per million of carbon dioxide. It's in tons of nitrogen fertilizer. So we need to broaden our understanding of the living world and start to use natural and social metrics. So I want to see not one single number that accounts for the value of everything. I think it'll always be flawed and I, I worry that the living world will always lose out in that calculation. I think we need to move towards a dashboard expressed in multiple metrics and often drawn visually, which is why the donut is drawn visually. We see the picture. We don't have to know the numbers. We can see it and feel it. I'd like to go back to the cities thing mm. because it's interesting to see groups like the C40 or the Global Covenant of Mayors mm. taking responsibility for a lot of things, including yes. CO2. And if you look at the balance of power, which might be shifting from mem well, national states or federal states, you, you see, for instance, that cities in the US or states in the US are stepping up to fill the void left by the federal government yeah. when it comes to climate action, for instance. Yeah. Do you think that is, this is going to play a major part in shifting from one system to the other? The fact that there is actually there are local solutions being unearthed and to a certain extent you say global commons is a massive question and it's so massive that actually nobody does anything about it yeah. because it's too big. But if you start to say this can be fixed at local level and we're going to streamline the number of problems that have to be dealt with globally, then you start moving. What do you think about that? So I think geopolitically in terms of the, the phase we're at in history, yes, we are seeing the rise of the city, the city mayor, the city um, ambition uh, in response to the failure of the state to move forward, particularly in the US at this moment. And, you know, leadership is wherever leadership emerges and it's emerging at the level of cities and states. Of course, the US has a system where, where um, states can have state law and so they can bring in place the kinds of regulations needed to actually enable a circular and distributive economy to happen. Other countries don't have that same devolution of, of regulatory power, so it's harder for individual cities to make the full shift with all the policy and regulatory backing that it needs. But I think a city is a really powerful scale. I mean, Adam Smith himself, for all his... his um, excitement about the powers of the market, he believed, it, of course, it had to be local because otherwise externalities, as they're called, would be disappear off outside. It, they, the, the impact of our actions need to be witnessed locally so that they can be taken into account in the whole. So I think the city is a really new, powerful locus of transformation. It's one that people also feel proud to be part of. They feel a belonging. And that's really important going back to the role of society and, and social behavior change. I feel proud to be part of this city. This is the way we do things here. We bike, we don't drive, we recycle our waste. We are proud to be a zero carbon city, for example. I, I, I think that's a really important move forward in the leadership we need. I'll take another question from the DIFF website. And Sally is asking, what makes you think the people who hold the power in the neoliberal economy will relinquish it without a fight? Nothing makes me think that. Uh, why would they? So instead of bashing on closed doors, I, I'm a mother of twins, so I've, I've spent the last decade realizing I'm, I've got no time to bash on closed doors. My strategy and the strategy of many people in this movement is to go where the energy is. Back to Buckminster Fuller, right? You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change things, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. So the way to move away from that neoliberal model is to build 
a compelling, irresistible alternative to show it's already happening because it is. Circular economy, businesses and initiatives are already in play. Distributive design, the, the employee ownership of business, community currencies, employee-owned energy systems, fab labs, open source design. This is all springing up. And the beauty is it's not being done by any central government. It's springing up thanks to people everywhere who are saying, you know what, this makes sense to me. I want to be part of this. So my excitement in writing this book on donut economics was exactly to exemplify the new emerging economy. And then you've got the old economy that doesn't want to let go. But you've got the new economy that's growing and people are excited to be part of and proud to be part of, much more proud to be here actually than here. Young, young, young graduate recruits actually don't really want to work for the big old companies anymore and those companies know it. So how can we bring up the new? It's tricky, right? The old is going to cling on, but how do you bring up the new? Part of that strategy is to celebrate it, to sing it and to show the economic theory that, from which it actually makes sense. Thanks for listening to the Circulate podcast. Access the full range of our podcasts from circulatenews.org.